Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Postpartum depression is associated with a host of negative outcomes for mothers and babies alike. Yet we still have very little understanding of the etiology behind it and what may exacerbate or mitigate it. Research on postpartum depression is difficult, however, because we can't randomly assign people and try to weed out the various components that may affect mental health outcomes. It's a difficult task. But what if a standard way of looking at parenting and outcomes using animal models might be able to inadvertently inform on postpartum depression? Joining me this week is Dr. Anna Karina Mundorf, who has postulated that a common paradigm, maternal separation, may be able to help us better understand postpartum depression and provide insights into how we can help families. By looking at behavioral, neurological, and hormonal changes associated with maternal separation, Dr. Mundorf highlights what this can say about what mothers and babies need at this critical time. I am so pleased to have with me today Dr. Anna Karina Mundorf. She's a research fellow in medical psychology at the Medical School of Hamburg at the University of Applied Sciences and Medical University in Hamburg, Germany. She completed her PhD in experimental and molecular psychiatry at the Ruhr University, LWL University Hospital in Bochum, Germany, and was a visiting researcher at the Developmental Psychopathology Lab at King's College London in the UK. Her research focus is on stress, especially in early life, and the use of animal models to inform on these issues. Thank you so much for being here today, Anna Karina. Thank you very much for having me. Now, do you go by Anna Karina or Anna? I should ask that. Anna's, Anna's yeah, fine? Anna's fine, yeah. All <laughs> right, perfect. Well, as you know, I mean, I, I'm thank you so much for taking time, especially with our time difference and everything going on um, with your work. But we're talking about a new paper that you have published in Developmental Psychobiology um, entitled Maternal Separation. Does it hold the potential to model consequences of postpartum depression, which I read and became fascinated by? So I am so glad you're here to talk about this. Um, but before we talk about the paper and get into the research and everything, how did you get to this stage? How did you become interested in early life stress and especially animal models, depression, all of this? How, how did your research accumulate in this particular area? <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> so uh, first of all, I'm, I'm quite fascinated by, by stress and experiencing stress because um, stress can be both so good and bad, like um, certain stress or hassles like uh, deadlines for work assignments or like rushing to catch a train are actually beneficial for us. Like they enhance our capabilities and to say like they help us get the best out of us. And uh, on the other side, they can be also harmful and have psychological or physiological consequences. Um, for me, for example, I'm actually quite good with having lots of assignments and having deadlines and I'm much more productive um, then when I only have one assignment but no deadline. So for me, I'm a bit struggling when I have no stress. But of course, there are other people who um, might be overwhelmed by having multiple assignments or by having several deadlines uh, approaching. And I also know friends who are stressing out a lot about it and then have um, also physiological consequences, like they're getting ill when they have lots of stress. So there's no clear way of telling what kind of stress or the amount of stress um, is actually harmful for someone because it's really highly individual how much stress you can take and whether that stress is 
beneficial or harmful for you. So I was really fascinated by this fact that it's so different for people, how stress affects them. And um, then I got into this line of work with um, early life stress because I was always fascinated by um, the abilities of children, like how, how much they can adapt, how much they, um, they learn in the early years and how able to are to um, resist the stress. Like there are some children suffering like horrible consequences or horrible uh, stresses, but they still develop fine or they um, can still resist that stress. Um, but of course, there are others who suffer the consequences. And sometimes you meet young um, adults or adolescents and you don't really know what happened. They seem fine. They seem happy. When you talk to them, maybe they re reveal that they suffered um, yeah, some traumatic events and they're still suffering from it, but you don't see from the outside. So I was um, fascinating by this uh, yeah, concept of stress and how it can be good and bad and how you don't know how people react to it. Uh, yeah, so I started my PhD studies on this um, animal model maternal separation to um, investigate the consequences of early life stress because in humans it's fascinating, but it's really hard to really separate the stressors and the environmental factors like siblings, like parents, like peer groups, like <laughs> housing conditions. So it's, there's so many inputs and, and um, variables that you can't really uh, account. So animal models kind of help you to look at certain aspects of stress. So you can control some variables and just alter like the early life stress, for example. Yeah, so that was the beginning for early life stress. That's fascinating. And, you know, we've had other researchers on the show that have done animal models. And that's always the go-to is it's the only way we can start to separate these little pieces out. Because without it, we just don't have... It's unethical to do the kinds of studies yeah, we would do. Yeah. And pretty impossible in yeah. humans. It just doesn't work. You know... I, I love your bit on stress and that individuality of it, how certain people are affected by, you know, the same event, two people react completely yeah. different to it. And yeah. I've always wondered, does that, at least in adults, and I think with children, it's slightly different, but in adults, do you think it has to do with our sense of our capacity to deal with it? That if we feel like we have the capacity to cope with stuff, that we can get it done, that that allows us to take it on and that kind of enhances our abilities to go. Cause we already have the idea yes. that I can do this. I'm like you give me yeah. five projects and different deadlines and I will map it all yeah. out, have it all done. Give me one laissez faire. And I'm like, all right, I guess I'll go play with the kids some more and build yeah. a Lego tower and grab a glass of wine. I'll come back and maybe it'll get done yeah, at some point. It exactly. just doesn't. And I guess that's not even capacity, but I'm not stressed about it either. It just, well, it kind of stresses, I guess, in the long term, but I do always feel about it with capacity. Yeah. And so when I think about early life stress, what do you think is that differing mechanism by which kids, I know there's temperament, there's the kind of the orchid and the dandelion, that element of sensitivity, but yes. it also feels like there must be more because it can't be, they don't 
they don't have the capacity to necessarily deal with these stressors. You put a child in, you know, as a refugee in a war-torn country, they're not the ones making those decisions. So what, I mean, just a hypothetical here, but what do you think that kind of leads to some of those, some of the features that might lead to some of those differential outcomes? Yeah, that's an interesting point. And that's, uh, I think, still discussed widely. And that's also how I came to um, investigate the mothers as well, because I think that for your stress capacity, let's say, whether you're resilient or vulnerable, um, I think it's really important um, how you grow up, like whether you have a supporting net by growing up or afterwards, whether you feel always you have a safety net, let's call it, and you... um, always uh, have like someone has your back so you don't feel that stressed um, or whether you grew up without this social background, without parents or friends supporting you, um, then I think you have less capacity for stress in, in my opinion or experience. I love that use of the safety net. Yes, because we can do, you know, it's a lot scarier to walk across a tightrope without the safety net underneath. Whereas if it's there, I can give it a shot. I might fall, but I know I'm not going to die. So yeah, especially (laughs) if you think about kids and you give them an assignment, some kids stress out a lot over an assignment, but some kids really calm down when they know that the parents are nearby and maybe sit next to them and like you talk to them and calm them down and tell not that bad we can i can help you if you struggle and so kids calm down more easily when they have like a supportive adult or friend um, instead of when kids are facing the assignment alone and then if you know you have to deal with it by your own then you're stressed out more easily it's there's a quote that it brings to mind and I'm going to butcher it because I can't remember it exactly and I can't even remember who said it and I apologize. <laughs> so I feel like I'm just throwing something out there that's ridiculous, but this is it. And it's, it's you know, the the key to, to childhood and everything is not to worry about our kids crying or being upset or whatnot. It's doing it alone. That's the yeah. problem. It's always it's that's the, when you're yeah. there for them the world, we're all going to cry. We're all going to be upset. We're all going to have these moments. It's knowing we have someone there on the other end to make it more bearable, which is excellent. So on that, we are now going to talk in depth about this particular article. Um, So now, as you said, you are focusing on animal models for postpartum depression. As we've talked about, there's lots of reasons to utilize animals we understand, as you already brought up, this is because we can start to hone in on specific areas. But what we don't know so far in this, and what I'm hoping you can clarify for people is, what have animal models, what kind of contributions have they made to the postpartum depression literature more generally, before we get to what you're looking at and everything, but more generally kind of that impetus, the background, the shoulders you're standing on, what was, (laughs) what leads up to that for your research? Yeah, yeah. So there are like two main aspects I want to point out. So one aspect is that the postpartum depression is or was often seen as uh, alike or similar to uh, like major depression, which of course in some terms it is, but there are also some, I would say, profound differences, uh, especially as the postpartum depression begins or is characterized by this postpartum time which is characterized by a fluctuation in hormonal levels and so a change in these hormones which are kind of essential 
to the postpartum time. But in the major depression research, uh, mostly men are studied and also it's the same for animal models. So you usually use male animals because it's easier if you can take out these hormonal fluctuations, which females or women have. Um, I'm sorry. Which is I, like, I have to ask this. So the hormone fluctuations are central to many of the issues of depression, but we're taking them out of the research because they're kind of a pain in the butt. Yeah, that's, that, yeah, we can, especially for postpartum depression, they're essential because they like postpartum depression starts after childbirth where you have lots of hormonal changes. And usually like for a long time, you, it, it was easier to only start, study males. Uh, there's, that is one big problem. And so animal models started to really focus on this uh, hormonal change by using female rats and mice which uh, has the essential part for it. <laughs> and uh, that's one part where, it actually, um, where we actually learned about the um, hormonal withdrawal hypo hypothesis. So it was the first way to investigate that actually this fluctuation in the um, pregnancy-associated hormones, estradiol and progesterone, was relevant to induce this depression-like symptoms we see in the postpartum depression. And that's also how you see it is important to study females or women because these hormones are like important for, male, for females and you have to study females and women to know about it and to actually see that this is the problem or one big problem. I could imagine that a model of postpartum depression based on male subjects would be a very poor model indeed that would yeah, yeah, <laughs> we'd yeah. be missing some very crucial pieces there so. exactly exactly of course like when they, first they started to uh, inject the female hormones into male rodents so you can also see whether having more of them actually affects like your anxiety but of course it's really strange if you inject female hormones into a male you know that something will happen but it's not really specific to uh like a female giving birth. So what are they thinking? How is this like sometimes, you know, I have the utmost respect for science, but the male centric view of it. I mean, I'm so glad yeah. it's changing. This is why we have you. Why yeah. work is so important. But it does sometimes just irk me to no end to think about how much of our models and our understanding. And I know yes. it's shifting and it's lovely, but Man, shift we it. just it took a long time to shift. Yeah, yeah. But it... this is also a problem for medication because most studies on medication are actually based on men, and we know for sure that the female body and metabolism is different than the male. So we actually have to study female females to for, for medication to see what kind of uh, like yeah what medication you need to give or uh, uh, like how you how the percentage should be for females it's really yeah <laughs> disappointing oh. sometimes <laughs> oh my goodness okay so we have our animal models that have led us to the hormone um withdrawal withdrawal thank you i was about to say absence but it's not a hormone withdrawal uh, yeah. theory yeah. now is that the basis or is there more that goes beyond that before we enter your maternal separation paradigm Let's say that that's one of the bases. There's another one about the corticosterone, or for in, in uh, humans, you say cortisol level. That um, we know from animal models that if you like 
inject corticosterone during pregnancy or like in the postpartum time that this increases the depression and anxiety symptoms in animals. And as we also know that if you are having a lot of stress, your cortisol levels also rise. So this would like show us that if you have a lot of stress, your cortisol level rise. And we see in animals that if you have higher levels, you have more anxiety and depression. But that's also something important to know that this is a vulnerable phase. We have lots of fluctuating hormones that are actually really inducing the symptoms for postpartum depression. So I want to just touch on to better understand myself, that kind of sensitive period with the fluctuating hormones. So it does sound like in many ways, many of these kind of the, the two main models, the two bases for everything really are dependent on this vulnerable state that, and I hate saying the word vulnerable because we're, you know, on this particular yeah. state that we have of being pregnant yeah. and then postpartum that w it is kind of an interaction yeah. with what's happening, right? So it's, we have this natural, you know, you naturally have hormonal changes, everything that happens both prenatally and sure. postnatally. And so it's really stuff that's interacting with that, not those changes themselves that are a yeah. problem. Yeah. So we can also call it a state of or time of change because you have lots of change going on on the hormonal level, but also on the behavioral level. You have like the child, of course, and you have like lots of expectations and like probably the family telling you what's best to do now for your child. So you have like so many things going on. I think the hormonal fluctuation you also have during your uh, estrus cycle. So when you also have periods where you feel more vulnerable or more anxious, maybe or more stressed out, but then it's like the interaction with everything else being new or coming along. Okay. That makes sense. Cause I always, I, I hate when people pathologize what is normal. So it sounds like this is important. I think a distinction for people to know it's not about the postpartum period yeah. per se. It's the interaction with what's happening during that postpartum period that leads to stuff. Okay. Yeah. So now let's talk about this maternal separation paradigm. So in animal models, this is about separating the dam, who's the mom, from yeah. her pups or babies. And this is for either brief or long periods of time. So can we first, I, I want to just clarify, when we talk about brief or long, what are we talking about here? We're not taking mom away for two weeks and then bringing her back. Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> what yeah, causes yeah. these periods? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, uh, yeah, sure. So they are generally there on the maternal separation um, paradigm there uh, is like a variety of different approaches or procedures for it. So every researcher uh, is using a different approach. Uh, the maternal separation paradigm is usually or mainly focusing on the effects on the offspring, so on the children. That, that's kind of how it's used mostly. So researchers are investigating whether it also whether it's, it's already having consequences if you take the mom away for 15 minutes, one time only, and then you see if this separation for 15 minutes during the day two after birth it's actually having long-time consequences on the babies, uh, like when they grow up, for example. But that also that's depending. So you have like some researchers using using this one-time separation. Some saying like a whole day, but that's it. So we separate them a whole day, uh, but then they spend time together. A whole day is quite long, but you can think maybe just one day, and then they can like um, recover from it. 
there are other researchers who use the um, paradigm for like 10 days and you separate over 10 days each day for 15 minutes. That's still a brief separation. And the long separation is really like for the first three weeks um, every day for three or four hours. So it's kind of really long. You could say it's maybe similar to kindergarten, but then it's really early. So really after two days after birth, the babies are still like naked and um, having the eyes closed and you start to separate them. So one would think it's really severe, severe to separate them for that long. So if we were to try and relate those separations to humans, because rats obviously have a shorter postpartum period before they're, you know, I mean, a rat, what, has babies at nine months or a year or something? Or am I just making that up? They're Yeah, nine months, they, yeah. they can get pregnant, yeah. So our nine-month-olds don't get pregnant. So I'm yeah, trying yeah. to <laughs> when sure. we think about this in terms of yeah. the link kind of to early life stress here, what kind of yeah. separation would we be thinking of? Obviously, a full day would be, what, like three, four days or something for a baby or? Yeah, so it's a bit different to like totally align because rodents are born premature. So they are born when the babies and humans are actually still in the tummy, I would say. So uh, the first few days for rodents are actually like the, the third trimester for humans. That's why they still have their eyes closed and they're kind of helpless. Um, but then after three weeks, actually they are weaned. So they're already children, independent. They can eat by themselves. They can drink by themselves. And they're actually already separated from the mom after three weeks. So if you separate them for three for the first three weeks, you separate them for let's say the whole childhood. Okay. And so one one day is a bit. If it's really early, then it's. I wouldn't say three days, but I would say it's still like when they are really vulnerable and helpless. And then one day is pretty long because usually rats are dependent on the mom to. Um, lick and groom them so that they are actually able to uh how you say it um so that the food is processed and then they need like they need the mom to actually warm them because they don't have any hairs and so they're really in the first 10 days they're really dependent on the mother okay so i would feel like it almost sounds like the first 10 days are almost like the first year of yeah. life and then the next two and a half weeks or one and a half weeks, I guess, because we're going up to three weeks is like the next two years kind of thing. I feel like when I hear about a kid eating independently, just to try and map, I know it's not a perfect mapping. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. my two-year-olds were throwing food on the floor. They were not, there was no, you know, they could do it themselves, but it wasn't yeah. good. This was not how that went. So <laughs> I feel like when you say yeah. that they're doing that, I'm like, yeah, let's put them at three. That feels about right. The first three years. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Which is what we talk that, about yeah. as the vulnerable period. Right. Especially neurologically. We always say that zero to three is yeah. the first three years yeah. of life um, up to that stage is there. So that's what we're talking about, which really puts in perspective when you think about those time frames. So even, you know, 15 minutes starts to feel like is that like you said, like kindergarten, we're sending yeah. babies away. at. I mean, I'm sure there are many American parents listening that think to what they have to do with daycare and starting at six weeks, 
evade and stuff as it goes through. So it almost does a, a relatively good mirror of that. Sure. So, okay. So now we understand that time. So how does this relate to postpartum depression? Because it sounds like, as you said, we've used this paradigm for studying infants, which I get completely yeah. because you're, but what does it have to do with postpartum depression, which is really a maternal issue? A maternal issue, yeah. But that's that's one thing. If you look about, if you only investigate the children and the consequences for the children, you also have to consider the mom because you separate her too from her children, from uh, yeah, her newly born children. And um, when I was doing my studies and I was separating the children from the mom, I realized that some moms are really stressed out about uh, being separated from their children. Um, and you could think that rats don't care that much about being separated because in the wild they could also go out and search for food so they're separated you could also think that maybe the mom is happy to have some time for herself but uh they the moms were really stressed out and interestingly they were also really stressed out when the the children came back to them so there was another time um where some there were also some differences between moms but some were really stressed out and were like taking all the children and then um, collecting, them, collecting them very quickly into the nest and then sit on them to protect them in a way of... Um, so I was puzzled by this interaction and I was wondering if it's, well, it's time for humans that the mom and the parenting style is always important for the, the child to cope with stress. So I was wondering whether the parental style of the red mom was also... Um, kind of influencing the coping of the offspring. And then so, um, when you study the mom, oh, sorry. No, 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 go ahead, please. And then uh, if you think about the mom, then she also has this kind of stressful time when during giving birth and then taking care of the children then also having them taken away. So uh, it was in the beginning more about the postpartum time for the mom. So it sounds like this taking away is almost that extra thing we talked about. You have all these changes happening and something else interacts with it. And this is that interactive effect that's going yeah. in to kind yeah. of trigger postpartum depression um, in yeah. rats. It's interesting. You talk about the types of separation, how, you know, in the wild they do separate. But I would sometimes I do get that. I'm sure some people thought, well, what's the difference? They separate. As a parent, I'm going to say it's very different if I go to the grocery store and I leave my kids at home with, you know, in a safe place, right? It's whatever it is. I yeah. deem my nest safe, what it is, versus someone coming into yeah. my house and taking my children and going away with yeah. them. There is yeah. a very, yeah, sure, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> separations yeah. are yeah. not all equal. There is. Sure, yeah. And you don't know whether they're coming back or like in what shape they're coming back. Yeah. Exactly. That is very different. The type of separation yeah. has to matter there. And I do yeah. want to get to that. I'm, I'm going to touch on it later, but I'm going to mention it now. Mm -hmm. So I bring it up later. That idea of happy to have alone time um, because that is a cultural. Yeah. And so this is really interesting to think about it from the perspective of what is the effect on moms. Yeah. And especially if yeah. you're then kind of culturally told you're supposed to be having a good, in fact, let's talk about yeah, it now, yeah. actually. I want to ask, yeah. you're told time. you're supposed to enjoy this time, enjoy yeah. your alone time, enjoy this time. But it sounds like what you're saying, what we see is that actually during these, these periods, that's not necessarily 
enjoying alone no. time. <laughs> no, no, yeah. Can't take no, it no, away. No, yeah. yeah. Do but, any like, of the mom rats look like they're having a good time? Well, it's hard to say, of course, uh, because I don't know what they <laughs> what they're having. Uh, some calmed down after a while, like they were they were stressed out in the beginning and circling in the cage, and then after a while they calmed down. But like they were always in a state of alert. Um, I would say so. They were always kind of ready to uh, to act if something would have happened or if the pups are coming back. So I wouldn't say they relaxed or they they enjoyed the time off. No, and just that afterwards, after the reunion with the children, they were most of them were stressed out, which we will also see later in the in the paper. Uh, kind of for me, it felt like they needed to make up for the lost time or for the time separated so they were kind of over um yeah overly motherly i would say and kind of making up for the time and taking care of all the pups and uh yeah i kind of think of it as that kind of overly mothering the overcompensation for that that lost time feels a bit like trying to regain control over yeah. a situation which i think is that kind of feature of postpartum yeah. anxiety and depression, trying to control yes. all of the yeah. environment around you yeah. to alleviate True. things. Yeah. So it does sound like that's kind of what they were doing. It's not, it's, but that's a very self-focused response to anxiety, which is interesting. It's not, yeah. you know, again, going to this depression and how it helps kids down the line model, you're really yeah. focused on how can I control things as opposed to necessarily, I guess I've got to help my kids overcome this separation too i'm not sure and i guess if they go hand in hand they might be mutually beneficial your sure. extra parenting can help your kid except i don't know we'll talk about whether that's always the case <laughs> so all right so we now have this model and when you looked at the research you were looking at both these brief separations the long separations the kind of review of all of those studies that looked yeah. at this with relation to postpartum so you looked at several outcomes across three different domains. You looked at the behaviors. You looked at the hormonal changes in moms. So the behavioral changes, the hormonal changes for moms, and the neuroanatomy. So we're really yeah. trying. I mean, it feels like you're just going deep dive into every area that we possibly know of at this stage um, outside of the spiritual. So which I don't know how we <laughs> test in rats. So there we go. Um, can you? So let's start with behavioral. What was mm -hmm. the key finding that you found when you look at these studies with respect to maternal behaviors and potential links to postpartum depression? What do we see in terms of maternal behaviors and how they relate to postpartum depression? Yes. So let me first point out that one benefit of the maternal separation paradigm, uh, like we said in the beginning, is that here we don't induce hormonal changes. So we don't induce anything else. We take the mom as she is and maybe she's having hormonal fluctuations after childbirth or probably she's having and then we only separate the child from the mom so we have like a I would say more natural setting because we just change this interaction between mom and pups and then um, most studies focused on the maternal behavior so whether this affects the maternal behavior after separation or up on reunion when you give the pups back to the mom and interestingly uh, most studies find an increase in maternal behavior. So not what we expect in postpartum depression, where we see rather a decrease of this maternal behavior towards the child. 
But here it is, of course, interesting to, uh, important to say that in animals, we take one specific time frame where we look at the interaction between mom and pups, and we only see how they react after giving back the children after the separation. And we see that after the long separation, we have more maternal care. So um, kind of the longer the, the mom and pups were separated, the higher the increase in this maternity, maternal be care, like uh, licking the pups or like building a nest or the time you take, you need and until you have retrieved all the pups back into the um, nest. And also the way you nurse them, like if you are more like sitting on top of all of them, or if you're more like relaxed and laying on the side, uh, that's the, the parameters you measure. Um, yeah, so it's, it's also important the time point because in humans could be that you also have this increase in maternal behavior. You just don't know because like for postpartum depression, you more take like the overall outcome, which is probably more decrease in interest. I was going to ask about that because it kind of leads me back to that thought of our sense of trying to regain control that once we feel like maybe we've regained control or we've given up and think we don't have control yeah. Do either one of those then lead to kind of a spiraling down that we don't have this or we think it's hopeless, we can't actually facilitate this type of change that might work. And yeah. I, I think about, you know, you hear, especially with postpartum depression babies, if you have a baby that cries a lot, the feeling yeah. of helplessness of being unable yeah, to change true. it. At first, most mothers true. do try to do a lot to change it. They hold them, true. they do this, they do that and everything. And then eventually it's, I can't do anything. Clearly I'm useless because I'm unable yeah. to change this, which if you're yeah. listening and you're there, I always remind people, but you are doing something because physiologically you're still regulating your baby by being there, even if they're still crying. So you just can't see what you're doing. And I think this is... Mm -hmm why I love so much what you did by looking also at the hormonal and the neuroanatomical because behavior, as we know, is a really hard proxy to go by. Someone yeah. who's doing that, why are they doing it? What's the mechanism? What effect is it having on others? We yeah. don't always know just by looking at them. It's like yeah. you said at the beginning, you talk to adolescents, they can seem fine. Then suddenly mm -hmm. they start talking and you realize you are not okay. That yeah. is not... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it yeah. really does or adults frankly I mean you could talk yeah. to a lot of adults Obviously. who look to have everything together and then they go back it's not always yeah. you know the people who exactly. have visual exactly. or visible pardon me trauma that are really struggling it happens to a lot of people so I, I was interested in that and I'm glad you brought up that time point because I do I think it actually makes sense if we're only looking yeah. at that time point now do you think there are studies that would now go on to start looking beyond that time point to see these longer effects? Yeah, there are actually studies um, looking at like over several days, for example. And then you also see that the, t the, the time spent with the pups decrease. So the interest or the maternal care decreases over time, which is on the one hand natural because the pups get more independent, but it could also be that the moms, like, like you said, with real moms, you tried and you tried, and then at some point you feel helpless. Um, there are also researchers who look at different time points during the day because it's also important if you look in the morning or in the evening, for example, or like when the separation was in the, in the evening and you look on the next morning, does it still have an effect? And then they found really mixed results saying sometimes it's increased, sometimes it's decreased. 
So it really depends on the time point you're looking, but it also, there are also some studies finding decreased maternal care or no change at all. So it's, it's, uh, it's a bit mixed, I would say. Okay. All right. And, and I think that's fair. And one of the things I actually, before we even get to the others that I noticed that you mentioned in the article was that there were also different results based on different strains of rats going through for this. And I know science, we like this very clear cut answer of no, this is what, and we tend to assume <laughs> our effects are going to be huge and generalize across everyone. Yeah. But I felt like this was really important because we have huge variability amongst humans, our susceptibility, our ability yeah. to cope with the stressors, everything like that. And it feels like these results really mirror the messiness of as much as we like yes. to think of our animal models as being our clear cut <laughs> yes. answer, we can manipulate yeah, yeah. But the outcomes are yeah. messy because this is, yeah. you know. Yeah, this is where the genetics also play into it. Like you have the, the behavior and you have stress, but you also in the, the, the surrounding, but you always have this genetic variable, sorry, variable um, playing into it, which you see very nicely in animal models because you have different strains which are more resilient and you have no change after the, even after severe maternal separation. And um, especially when you look at the depression and anxiety phenotypes, we have um, huge differences between strength. So you have some rats being really, um, let's, I don't know if you call it vulnerable or for them, the maternal separation has an effect and they are more depressive and more anxious. And you have others which are seem fine, let's say. So there's no difference to the control. So um, yeah, it's really important. Yeah. And that's, and I, it's so funny because I think part of the, the thing that comes up with this research, not that you've done it, but as my own brain goes to thinking of this is I know there are people listening saying, oh, wouldn't it be lovely if we were all those rats that were impervious to mm. the stress? And I'm like, but no, that I, I think probably we're still missing some other things. You may be impervious to this particular stress, but you may also be missing some of the benefits of behaviors yeah. that might help people thrive as you go through. And, yeah. you know, we also I look at the rats and you have, I guess, probably a bit more control, but in terms of their genetics, but also their upbringing, you start looking at different generations and, you know, how is one you know, dam raised by her mother, how does that affect her? So the whole epigenetic um, yeah. relevance of this goes through. And so it is, there's so many more layers than I think we, we like yeah. to think that go in. But yeah. I do, I found it really fascinating, those different strains, because it felt like it just mirrored this human behavior that we see and experiences as we go. So, okay, so we know behavior is mixed. But we can see an increase more generally. There's an increase was kind of the overall looked all together mm -hmm. yeah. more generally. There's an increase, but only right after. So we still don't know quite what's happening, yeah. except for a bit of research showing some decrease as the days go on. Now, what about hormonal? What do we see? Because I mean, when we talk about these, we already have hormonal shifts likely going on in the postpartum period. So how does this impact the natural hormonal shifts that happen? Yes, yeah, so most researchers looked at the uh, cortisol levels um, to kind of verify that the maternal separation really poses a stress on the dam and it's also affecting the, the, the physiological stress response. And they all find an increase in cortisol or corticosterone. 
And it's the same you see in postpartum depression, where you overall find an increase in this stress hormone. So that's, um, that's important that it's the same in animals and humans um, to verify that this separation is enough to actually like change the physiological stress response. And then um, researchers also looked at the estro estrogen and oxytocin levels. <laughs> um, sorry, to uh, like because estrogen is a female hormone. Let's let's call it that. And oxytocin is important for the, the bonding between mother and uh, pups or children. So it was interesting to see whether there are changes as well. And um, in humans they um, actually see that estrogen is decreased in postpartum depression after uh, in the postpartum time. And um, they found uh, the same in animals. Let me have a look. Well, the, for the maternal separation, they did not investigate estrogen that extensively because most studies focus on the behavior and not so much on the hormone on the in the neuroanatomy. Um, unfortunately, um, they have some, that's one benefit of animal models. You can alter something like you can have knockout mice, mice that do not express estrogen, for example. And then you, you can see whether this has an effect on the behavior. They have more like a, concrete connection between the hormone and the behavior. And this was really interesting because they found that when you knock out the estrogen receptor, you have an increased anxiety. So that would say that um, if you have less estrogen or estradiol, you have more anxiety in the animals and you see something similar in the humans in the postpartum depression. So this was a link that was still separate from that maternal separation. So they didn't really look at the estrogen with maternal separation, unfortunately, but they did see generally lower estrogen mirrors greater anxiety. Now, what about the oxytocin? There were also not so many studies. <laughs> yeah, nothing there, to, yeah, which is so interesting. It, well, I was going to say that, you know, because the first one with cortisol, where you actually do have the research, it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, this behavior not being the greatest marker, because you have this variability in behaviors, but it felt yeah. like the cortisol results were much stronger, that we are seeing that these events are stressful. Some people are, or some people, some rats, are demonstrating that stress in ways that you can visually see whereas others aren't. And I don't know that the ones that aren't are necessarily, quote unquote, coping better if they're still showing these increases in cortisol, right? I mean, that's a question. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But as we know in humans, just because someone doesn't behaviorally show you their stress doesn't mean they're coping. It's not, a, <laughs> it's not an end game there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So for oxytocin, I found actually it's a bit mixed and there are not so many studies again. Uh, they found an increase in the positive receptor cells, meaning that there were more receptors waiting for oxytocin, if we can say it that way, which is interesting because you maybe would expect less, uh, but an increase in receptors could also mean that more oxytocin is needed to actually um, 
how you say it, like uh, uh, overcome the overcome or like to actually um, have the reaction you would have if you have less oxytocin. So you need more to be um, happy, let's say. That's exactly how I would think of it. I think my own theory would have been that I would expect the body to be trying to get more to just bring yeah. back that bonding, you know, more bonding, more this to try and yeah. make up for everything. So it's kind of that hormonal way of saying, no, 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 no. Come on. We need more and more yeah, to make up more. for this. Yeah. It's like if we dip down here, we need to get back up here. So we need a lot more than if you're here going to to that. Yes, yeah. I just, for anyone listening, mm -hmm. I use my hand gestures because we can see each other. Ah. You can't see my hand gestures. They made sense. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so we have hormonally, there's a bit of a mix. Now, finally, what about the neuroanatomy? What did you find with respect to changes in, in neuroanatomy? Yes, this is actually quite interesting. Um, if you think about the stress response, you have different... Uh, brain regions which are involved in the stress response and one of this region is the hypothalamus and um, here we see um, changes in the gene expression in this region relevant for the stress response and we have um, so we see more activity in this region and we find something similar in the when we measure the same gene in the placenta of postpartum depression so we can also find an increase in this uh, hormone which is activating the, the stress response in the hypothalamus. So in humans, we don't have that much studies on the brain, but we find similarities when we look at the placenta. So the fact that you're looking at the placenta really speaks to kind of a, a pre-postpartum yeah. yes. influence before, here. Yeah, of some, yeah that yeah. something's happening prenatally as well that puts, I guess a mom at risk is really a better word yes. for it because it's yeah. not a guarantee, but that's really fascinating. Cause I think when we think about the hormonal shifts that happen, I know they happen throughout pregnancy as well, but you know, it's, um, it almost yeah. feels like the etiology starts shifting back. Yeah. Before... Yeah. So they look even further, same for estrogen. They also, uh, there are some studies looking at estrogen levels before giving birth. So in the second trimester, to see whether um, the levels are kind of already defying whether you're at risk of developing postpartum depression or not. So whether you have more or less estrogen um, already has an impact. That is really interesting. And it kind of, I mean, makes my next question perhaps sound wrong, but maybe mm -hmm. not so wrong. Um, you know, when I was reading all of this, I know in the paper, it really seems like this maternal separation is being used almost as like a exacerbating the effects of postpartum depression to understand the effects. So it's almost viewing it like it's there. But it felt to me like it also could speak to the onset of postpartum depression, that when we... <sighs> It's not just about the the separation, but it also speaks to the absence of support. Because in all of these cases, these mm -hmm. are rats who are not socially supported during that separation, uh, right? They're they're not they're left alone yeah. when the separation takes place, and they also seem to have this expectation that they're supposed to separate more, especially those who have that regular separation throughout time. And it feels like it mirrors a lot of Western cultural ideals. And I know there's a lot of cultural variation in postpartum depression. So although yeah. certainly it exists 
across at least every culture I know we've studied, the rates themselves are much higher in Western cultures. And it feels like this becomes, in my mind, this it perfectly summarizes the separation we expect early and often yeah. of mothers yeah. and babies and the lack of support for mothers throughout it. Right. Yeah. That is That's the, a good point. we really like these poor little rats are, as you said, pacing the cage, like the cage and unable. Yeah. There's, there's no other rat to come by, put their little paw around and be like, we got this, we're going to support you and get you. Yeah. No safety yeah. Net. And it yeah. feels like it kind of speaks to, the onset of that. So I'm actually kind of curious in your thoughts about could this be seen as a proxy for kind of this onset? Although, of course, given the fact that there seem to be risk factors ahead of time, potentially, <laughs> but is this yeah. also then maybe exacerbating those physiological, biological risk factors? Is this the behavior, these behaviors, the either lack of support and or regular separations? Could they be that kind of final straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak, for people that might already have that physiological risk? Yeah, that's a good point. And I would totally agree with you that uh, it's the, the final straw that's, yeah, that's breaking. Um, because that's exactly how you think about vulnerability or resilience in a way of that you have like a predisposition and maybe you have other factors already making you more prone or more vulnerable to develop something, but you still need a hit or something happening that, it, that you actually develop a disorder. And I think it's the same for postpartum depression. And I think, like you said, in Western culture, you have less safety net, but you also have more expectation, I would say, especially in the modern society where working moms, but also working dads, have more expectation that people say, you work, you give your child away. Do you actually still uh, spend time with your child? And that after childcare and you get your child back, I can imagine moms and dads have more, um, have the feeling that they need to make up for the lost time so that you have to make something special or spend more um, important time with your child. And so it's like lots of expectations coming as well. It yeah, and that that's it. Also, kind of struck me as when we talk about the the postpartum depression model in humans and that lack of care yeah. that kind of comes after. Yeah. It also felt like perhaps one of the areas where that might explain some of the the behavior mismatches with the rats is that if they didn't have that onset of depression already, they're more capable of jumping into that. Okay, I'm overcompensating yeah. and going for this. And so actually that raises a question. In those longer studies where they're separating every day, mm -hmm. um, does eventually that reunion care diminish? It diminish over time, yes. But it's still, like if you see at the other parameters, like the cortisol response or um, the anxiety levels, uh, it still stays until the end. So the moms still have, have a very high cortisol response. So there's no um, getting used to it, I would say. Uh, just that the maternal care usually decreases. Yeah. Which, again, feels like a very... When I just speak to mothers that have had postpartum depression, 
Yeah. It really mirrors a lot of some of this giving up of feeling helpless in in the yeah. face of everything. And it's it seems like these poor rats, I suddenly have so much more empathy <laughs> for these little guys <laughs> yeah. and girls. It's so hard. Yeah. Um, but it is because I really, you know, I think about what these can inform for us. And when we see also the effects on, on babies longer term. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it's hard because we look just at the separation is the separation causing the babies to struggle or is it the struggle exactly. of the mothers too yeah, going yeah, back? Yeah. And so if, yeah, I want to hear, how do you hear, think of this interaction happening when we now think like yeah. we've talked about the mothers, but when we think about the effects on children, how do we see this interaction happening using this maternal separation paradigm? Yeah, there are actually like two important or interesting points to consider. One thing, one is that, uh, like you mentioned, you only look when you look at the maternal separation and the, the mother. You only look at this early time, and then the studies stop looking at the mothers. So you actually don't know nothing about the long-term consequences. And we see some hormonal and neurobiological alterations. And maybe if we would follow up for the second um, litter or like the next babies or like the, the time without babies could also be something where we actually would find more profound depression phenotype. Um, like what happens when the babies are out of the cage, are gone, so nobody knows whether this also has, has a long-time effect. Um, and the other point, it's really interesting that most people don't think about the interaction between mom and pups They're, when they investigate the consequences of maternal separation so they always say it's only because of the maternal separation um, I think that the mom has a very important role for coping for stress coping because in my studies I realized that I have um, let's call it an effect of the litter whether the whole litter like siblings were actually affected by maternal separation whether they were more depressed or not um, which could, of course, be genetic. But I think it's more about the parenting style of the mom, actually, that whether she kind of poses a good buffer between the pups and the maternal separation or not. So, interesting. So what constitutes a good buffer in a maternal... <laughs> for a mom rat, what is the yeah. good buffer? I, just, I don't even know what to say. I think in humans, we look at sensitive and responsive parenting as being yeah. kind of, and, and being there is really being it, there, and yeah. being there regularly, um, you know, to help cope yeah. with separations or anything. And, and I think there are probably separations as we know that go beyond the pale. We know that yeah. there's only so much we can buffer yeah. when it comes to very young sure. children and, and everything, but yeah. that buffering, but I'm just curious, like when you see the maternal <laughs> behaviors, what are you looking at for buffering this stress for the entire litter? Yeah, that's, that's interesting question, a bit hard to, to answer. I would think, I would say that the moms who looked the most relaxed were actually the best buffering, like when... Uh, there were like differences in the maternal behavior when, when you give back the babies into the cage. So some are very hysterical running around, even running across their litter, their babies, because they were so hectic, they just run across them, which doesn't harm the baby, but still stressing. And there were others um, which were really like relaxed and 
in a way of just give back my babies and I will collect them later when you're done. And so and I think that's more um, than a more relaxed stress response. So the babies were also less stressed when I gave them back. So they were more discovering and running around and playing. And then the mom just like slowly put them back into the nest. And yeah, so that's, I would say that's kind of a buffer for, for rats. And in, I'm sorry, I'm shocked that they can run over their babies and everything's okay. You said that and I was like, oh my God, they're trampling their children to death. That is really bad. <laughs> we do not have good outcomes with that. Um, but with... In animals, it's more, it's more normal, natural. If you look at dogs and cats, they sometimes they grab their babies quite harsh, but it doesn't harm them. So That's true, actually. We've seen kittens all the time. I, so it's, yeah. yes, that is exactly what they do. It's still doesn't sit it's well weird. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. It, yes, yeah. weird is probably yeah. the best word for it. Um, now, do these mothers, is there a difference in those who may be very frantic at the start and able to kind of, okay, rein it in? So they have their first, oh, thank God you're bringing my baby back to me. Um, the first time maybe, but then after, are they able to get calmer and calmer or do they continue to seem to be overly stressed by, and I guess I'm thinking just of those who have regular separations, um yeah. does that frantic reunion continue or do they learn to start calming themselves through that period as well so here i can only speak um, from my personal experience so i don't know about any study really investigating this uh from my experience i would say that they do not calm down so that when the mom was stressed she was stressed until the very end okay and then the babies were also more stressed out. Yeah. yeah. And that speaks to, I mean, you could probably speak more to this than I could, but I know I've seen and, and talked to families about the fact that, you know, if you are stressed, your child mm -hmm. will pick up on it because yeah. that is, you yeah. know, I, I always think kids are they're, they don't understand all our language. They don't understand mm -hmm. the world. They can't yeah. do their taxes. They don't know, you know what to do, but they are really, really good at picking up on emotional cues from other people because that's how we survive. That yeah. is, if mom is freaking out, okay, yeah. something is yeah. not right here. I better, exactly. you know, stay yeah. close and, yeah. you know, this is how I'll stay alive. So it makes sense to me what you're describing, that these mothers mm -hmm. who can calm, even if they're feeling stress, but yeah. who can calm themselves as they go to address their children will kind of foster that sense yeah. of stress coping that yeah. over time is still beneficial. I mean, ideally we're not, you know, dealing with that level of stress all mm -hmm. the time. And I'm sure that may have some effect in and of itself, but yeah. buffering it to a degree yeah. is our own management of it. Um, one of the things you mentioned in the paper that they're doing with the, with, I guess, was it children? Are they doing it with the rats too? But we, you talked about kangaroo care in the paper yeah, as a so way yeah. to, buffer some of these to help children after, I guess, separations, anything. But you mentioned it for moms, too, as a potential. And I know there isn't that I know of all the research yeah. on it. I know Niels Bergman's done a ton on on kids and everything. But what is your hypothesis about moms? Because I, I absolutely think this is a study that needs to be done. Uh, if it if yeah. someone isn't working on it already, this is essential. But what would you think is the the link between mums and and babies in this? How would kangaroo care help mums given what you found in this particular paradigm? 
Yeah, I would think it's the same, like as we discussed before, that something that benefits one part, in this case, the, the children, the, the child, can also benefit the mom. So it's also a way for the mom, like you also said, to have control in the situation. Like you have the child close by, you can hear the heart rate and you can like smell and some like have every sensation of it. So it's kind of you're in control. You have your baby, you feel it. And I really think it can also calm down the mom a lot. And like like we said before, the bonding hormone oxytocin will be activated. And um, yeah, it's a bit, it's a shame that most studies only focus on, on the child and neglecting the mom when it's an interaction and you always have to consider both paths. And actually we have to say not only the mom, but also the dad, because in the, in the modern society, it's more common that dads also can stay home and they also do kangaroo care with the baby. And I also heard that it's sometimes um, recommended that you continue to do kangaroo care when you're home with the child uh, until the, the first weeks or month and you just, if it's not too cold, the mom and the dad can just like take the, the baby close to them without uh, like con skin contact and it's beneficial for both. Oh, yeah. And I like any partner, whether it's and I would also yeah, say yeah. whoever supporting is there. And sure. it's interesting because when you mentioned it, it triggered for me. I was at very high risk for postpartum depression with my okay. first. It was, you know, my midwives flagged it. I hit, you know, history of depression, maternal line down the wazoo of postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a, you know, okay, we're getting ready for this. And it was great. They were, I had a psychiatrist set up before I even gave birth mm -hmm. and everything. And for whatever reason, it didn't. Yeah. And I go back to yeah. reading this was like, I had support, a very supportive husband, but that's it because we didn't have family nearby at mm -hmm. all. So we didn't have that piece fully in place, but he was incredibly supportive. But I basically lived wearing my daughter. It yeah. was right. just yeah. for months. She just yeah. didn't like, but she, and it was partially her temperament too. She didn't like being put down. So mm -hmm. she's yeah. very sensitive still is, but it was, we co-slept. We, you know, she was on me in a wrap pretty much mm -hmm. every day walking around. Luckily she was a summer baby, which made it a lot easier for all of that to happen. <laughs> My son's a winter yeah. baby. gets a lot colder here for that. So it was, <laughs> but I think it really had, as I read this, I'm like, Oh, we know the yeah. effect on kids, but I actually now go back and go, huh. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that was part of the kind of buffering yeah. for me, that very yeah. high risk that was there yeah. coming into play that that physiological, hormonal, neurological, yeah. all those effects yeah. actually helped buffer it. So it was, you yeah, just put yeah. my own, you know, 11 years later, <laughs> this context of hey, wait a second, going back and, and not to feel bad, you know, if you're a parent who, who wants to do that, you know, this may be your body kind of telling you we need this right it yeah. was it because it felt so normal it wasn't some people are like don't you want to put her down and it would be like well mm -hmm. no actually I, I don't I mean when I go to take a shower I will but that's you know, <laughs> these small yeah. bits yeah. but it really it was almost like somehow physiologically my body knew what it needed to mm -hmm. stay regulated and it was that proximity um, yeah. especially in those early kind of time mm -hmm. periods there. So it was yeah, really interesting. Nice. So I thank you for that. You just even helping, <laughs> you know, yeah, me get nice. there. Yeah. Um, now, maybe, 
Also Sorry? something we can, that's maybe also something we can learn from, from the maternal separation animal model that um, everyone is different in what's stressing you and what's not stressing you. Like for the animals, some, for some rats or mice, it wasn't this, the brief separation, 15 minutes, one time was enough, enough to stress them out and have long-time consequences while others are fine with a long separation over several days and they have no consequences at all. So you really should feel what's, think about what's feel good for you and like whether you want to give your child away or not and how much you can take. Because like I said in the beginning, stress is different for anyone and you should uh, consider that. And there's so many expectations on how to be a good parent. Um, so I think that's also a big point for postpartum depression that you are struggling with the expectations of being a mom or being a dad and the things you need for yourself to be happy and the most important thing for the child to be happy is that you are happy or feeling good so yeah i think that's something important we can learn from animal models i i'm gonna ask you something here because i think you just triggered something for me <laughs> that it was i have always heard people told I was told it to that it's selfish to be doing it because it feels good for you that it's because your kid needs to learn to be put down on their own they need to learn how to be independent now yeah. anyone that knows my work knows that's just bullshit um your baby does not need to learn to be independent. They become independent over time mm -hmm. through support and, and codependency, not codependency, interdependency, pardon me. Um, but it feels like what you've just done is kind of shifted that idea that actually, if this proximity is helping mom, it's actually not harming baby at all it, in any way, shape or form. It actually is probably helping baby because a stressed mm -hmm. mom is... Yeah not facilitating that type of interaction or coping that would help babies. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. Of course. Well, you can be an overprotecting mom, which could be like not so good for the baby, but then if you're overprotecting, you're also stressed. So you, that's what you just said. You should be relaxed. So, uh, Yes, you've just nailed it. This is, sorry, that like mind blown kind of visual is coming out of my head is that yes, when we always talk about overprotecting or that overbearing mother, yeah. that, and, and I always see people trying to separate this. They're like, people accuse me of being overbearing because I'm very present and we're very close and we spend a lot of time. Yeah, but these different. are not stressed moms. Yeah, these exactly. are they enjoy their time with their kids. They're spending yeah. time. They're happy. Kids are, th everyone looks good. And I yeah. think that's it. I'd never thought about the stress pieces coming into it as, yeah, yeah, with overbearing, you're stressed out and putting that stress on your, it's that you're bringing them into try and gain control, not yeah. because of the bonding exactly. relationship between them. Yeah. yeah. You should separate the parenting style and the personal stress experience and yeah. consider them separately. Yeah. Oh, that's going to sit with me all day. That's going to be a whole new way to think about things there. Okay. I know I've had you over time here and can I ask one more quick question of you here? Sure. So when we think about um, this maternal separation model, we talked about kangaroo care. Are there any other treatments that you think it might provide? Because if we're already at the stage, we can think about it as potentially like kangaroo care almost gets to 
avoiding it in a sense, right? Because you're getting all that feedback early often. So you think about the at risk and a buffering. But what about what could it tell us about treatments if you already have a dyad that is struggling? And I say the dyad struggling with postpartum depression or the entire family unit struggling with it. But I think as you've made so clear, we don't just talk about moms suffering with it. It's the children suffer too. And then everyone around them. Um, can't, are there any other treatments that might speak to that, that this might help us inform or even policy changes, anything that might work towards kind of helping in this regard? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, (laughs) but difficult to answer quickly. Um, I would say that's what research always wants is to, to give leverage for policy makers that we prove something that most people maybe know of feel it's that way, but you need proof to actually change something. So yeah, one important thing would be that um, you get to spend more time with your child after childbirth so that the parental leave could be somehow extended or would be more, um, more pressure, more um, important for, for everyone. And that maybe it would be more easier to uh, start back with reduced hours that you still have more time with your child. And I think it's also important that this needs to be considered very um, individually. So it's hard to tell whether someone can go back to work and will be fine or not. So on the other side, there are, always, there are also people telling moms you are a bad mom if you go back to work full time. But maybe you're fine with it and maybe the child is also fine with it so you you shouldn't judge um yeah then maybe like you said about a bit about yourself that it can increase the awareness of um whether this is stressing you and maybe this is stressing you a lot or in a bad way and maybe you should think about help or other ways maybe you have help in the family or neighbors maybe you need more help so um in a way of just making more awareness about separation is a stressor and it can actually lead to harmful consequences and uh, maybe first just in the behavior that you feel stress and you the child is stressing you out but like we know from the animal but also from the human studies the stress can actually change something in your brain chemistry and in your hormone chemistry and this is where it gets a bit dangerous i would say because these are really changes that can if they get profound they can really affect you and it's really hard to get back to normal when your brain chemistry is changed absolutely and i I am a huge advocate of longer maternity leave options or parental leave options and i think that's the options is that crucial kind of getting back to what you said about some people go back early and it works for them. What I hate hearing is people going back early because they have to, because yeah. either forced by lack of options or financially lack of yeah. options there True. that bring up yeah. those are kind of those things. And, you know, as someone who I guess lives in a country with socialized medicine, I always go, if you want to make an economic argument, we're paying for the lost productivity, we're paying for the medical care, we're paying for all of this. And wouldn't we be better off just paying up front for a bit more leave that makes it work for everyone? It just seems 
like yeah. economically even it makes sense because that's usually the awful argument I hear against this as if, mm -hmm. I mean, personally, it seems like it's just a kind thing to do to human beings yeah. to leave those options open for families to have this time together. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently not everyone has that sense of morality. So we sometimes yeah. need to talk dollars. So with that, as we go, what are you working on next? What are you still looking at postpartum depression? Have you moved on to another area of stress? What is your research looking like? So um, it's a bit of both. So I'm still looking at postpartum depression because I still think it's very interesting. Um, and here I'm interested in the activity in the brain of postpartum depression depressed moms because there are not so many studies actually looking at changes not like profound changes but there are some studies like when you um when you're in the scanner when they scan your brain and then they show you pictures of your own child or of another child and then they can see which brain areas activated for your own child or another child and then they can see if it's different than um, like the control moms or dads and um, I think it's important to know whether there's already something changing in the brain and it's not like you don't have to feel like it's your fault when you don't have that happy feeling when you see your child because maybe it's already something altered in your brain that's just like connected differently when you see your child so that's uh, something I'm interested in. That's fascinating. And I know those studies about generally people respond differently to their child versus others and just the whole reporting of that dampened affect. I'm not bonding with this kid. There's this child here. And and again, going back to those expectations, societal expectations, you try to say eh, about looking at your kid judged very harshly. That is not something people take lightly. So this is, yeah. So you're looking at fMRI now. And I'm assuming yeah. with humans, not rats. This study would be in human, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could do the same in rats, but I think showing pictures wouldn't be like uh, working for them, yeah. I'm, I'm not, yeah, that would be really interesting, though. I'd be curious what they would look at if they yeah, were looking at true, yeah. of it. Well, I look forward to reading it when it's out. So I will very much be on the lookout for that. I cannot Great. thank you enough for taking the time to talk about this. This has been fascinating and holy enlightening. I mean, it's <laughs> rare that I get such a kind of mind blown moment of, of everything, but that's there and I'm going to stick with me. So thank you so much for this. I will have all the links. If you're looking in the show notes, you'll be able to see links to the papers, to Anna's work, her website, everything. Um, and it does translate into English. There's It, it has that English option, but it might pop up in German, which it did for me. So no, don't worry about that. And we will look out for new research from you. So thank you so much again for taking the time. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much for having me and for this nice conversation. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. I do hope you feel more empowered to parent as you feel comfortable doing and to support families who are struggling with the expectations of our society. I especially hope you also had the mind-blowing moment that I did with regard to how stress plays into so many of our ideas around parenting. Join me next week as we continue down this path of stress, specifically looking at how we can assess the effects of prenatal stress on child development. Dr. Gerald Meyer of the University of Massachusetts joins me to talk about his groundbreaking work on prenatal stress and what it means for this research field going forward. In the meantime, please stay safe and happy parenting.